Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. Hey, this is Ray Siervo, and I have the privilege of guest hosting for Dr. Frank Turek's Cross-Examine podcast. And I'm very excited about this. Again, I'm Dr. Ray Siervo. My ministry is called No Pat Answers. And that kind of dates me. Uh, you have to be older than 35 or 40 to know what a pat answer is. But basically, a pat answer is a trite, glib shot from the hip that is not well thought out. And I met Frank about almost 20 years ago when I did my first module at Southern Evangelical Seminary. And Frank and his lovely wife, Stephanie, were kind enough to host me one night. And uh, that's where I met Frank, and we began a friendship that's lasted, I guess it's 19 years now. And I just appreciate everything that Frank does. And as I said, it's a real privilege to be a guest host for him today. And I trust that I'll be able to share some things concerning, uh, as Christians, how we can um, navigate a post-truth culture. And we'll get into that a little bit. But I'll just tell you a little bit about myself. I pastored for almost 28 years before I started to study apologetics, came into it by someone offering me to read a book called Can Man Live Without God by Ravi Zacharias. At the time, I was helping some churches plant churches or develop church planting teams. And we kept running across people who would tell us that the Bible was just another religious book, an insignificant book, and that um, the gospel had no meaning for them. And they challenged us with Darwinian evolution. They challenged us with postmodernism and all those things. And it really sent me on a tear, if I could say that, to find out how to give answers there. There was a number of things that happened, but I ended up going to Southern Evangelical Seminary at the age of 52 to get my master's degree in apologetics. And I followed in Frank's footsteps and went and got a doctor of ministry as well in apologetics. And I've been based in New Jersey for the last uh, 11 years, 12 years now, and do a seminar on the last Saturday of January, June, and September in Long Branch, New Jersey, if you're ever in the area. Look us up. I'll give you more information on that later. And we've done a uh, annual conference on Christian apologetics right here in New Jersey as well. So what I'm going to do today is talk about navigating or sharing Jesus in a post-Christian culture. And it's one of the most significant things that we need to learn how to do today because our culture has changed. I'm one of those people that's old enough to remember when our culture or the ethos of our culture was very different. And we saw the change start to happen in the late 60s, early 70s, through the 80s and 90s into the turn of this century. And now we come up with this term called a post 
truth culture. And basically, uh, some people call it a post-Christian culture. And basically what we're talking about is that there is no such thing as truth anymore. There's no such thing as absolute truth or no one can know the truth. And I know you've heard Frank and other people uh, teach or talk about how to refute those things. You know, they have to use truth to deny it. But every Christian should learn how to navigate in this post-truth culture because of the challenges that it presents to the gospel of Jesus Christ. If there is no truth, then the gospel is not truth. We can't put it in that category. And one of the things I'm going to do is look at some of the symptoms of this post-truth culture and then go behind the scenes and see how this has really overtaken us in our culture and really caused a lot of chaos. But we have to look at some things to understand it. When I do this, um, where you can see what I'm doing, I use some of the headlines that come up usually with um, school shootings or some other atrocity that happens. And, you know, you, you ask the question, how does a person, certainly a young man, pick up a gun, go into a school and just start shooting people? Where does he get the idea that that's okay or that he has a right to do that? And I'll tell you right up front that we basically taught our young people that they have the right to do that. We've done it in, in, a, in a way that wasn't very clear, but we've done it through this idea called values clarification. And we'll talk more about that. But if you, if you go, on, go online and just Google school shootings and look for headlines, you'll be amazed at the amount of things that show up. So... You know, we deal with also other subjects like transgender, and I have to say the U.S. is leading the way there. I travel to South Africa a few times a year, and they live in a very um, uh, postmodern culture, but it hasn't really transferred to this post-truth culture yet. And um, we can we can see that they're on their way, but we're already there. You know, next step is or next thing to do is to ask the question: Where do we go from here? What's the next thing? Well, how did we get here? Let me, let me read a couple of things. Uh, this is from Nancy Piercy. She wrote this in an article in um, Human Events. I believe it's from the year 2000. She said, The direction in intellectual history since the Enlightenment has been to grant to science the authority to pronounce what is real, true, objective, and rational, while relegating ethics and religion to the realm of subjective opinion and non-rational experience. Once this definition of knowledge is conceded, then any position that appears to be backed by science will ultimately triumph in the public square over any position that appears based on ethics or religion. Now, that that seems to be, tr be true if we value what the scientific community is doing, or at least what they're resting on to come to their conclusions. But what's happened is that because our society is really based on emotion, it's really based on the idea that we're all supposed to be happy, uh, that the scientific pronouncements on what is real and what's not real really hasn't um, taken root. 
What's really taken root is our emotional experience. That's why entertainment has such a high value. Well, let me get to the, the, to the part that gets, goes a little bit further back. Uh, it, it relies on what I've already said is called a fact-value dichotomy. And we can trace this back to a man who was a philosopher, a Scottish philosopher at the turn of the 19th century, I believe. It's David Hume. And his famous quote, and I'll tie these things together for you, his famous quote is, if we take in our hand any volume of divinity or school metaphysics, for instance, let us ask, does it contain any abstract reasoning concerning quantity or number? No. Does it contain any experimental reasoning concerning matter of fact and existence? No. Commit it then to the flames, for it can contain nothing but sophistry and illusion. Now, try not to confuse you here. Basically, what he was saying that is, if something can't be empirically um, demonstrated, if it doesn't have any mathematical value, then it has no value at all. And he really is uh, putting forth this idea of a fact-value dichotomy that facts are what are real and values are not real. And then what we'll see is that there was a real shift in this because while the scientific revolution may have been um, really putting forth this idea that we can find truth through science, um, we're going to see that, that that really doesn't hold a lot of water. So we're about to take a quick break, but we'll come right back and I'll unpack this for you and we'll go on from here. Thank you for listening to the Cross-Examine Podcast. This material is made available to you for free by the contributions of listeners like you. If you wish to support future podcasts, just go to crossexamine.org and click on the Donate button or simply use the Donate feature directly on our app. Thanks. Hey, this is Ray Siervo, and I am sitting in for Dr. Frank Turek for this radio show. And um, we've been talking about a fact-value dichotomy that really has been the cause of a post-truth culture that we're living in today. And I want to talk to you about navigating in this post-truth culture. And basically, how do we share the gospel in a culture that doesn't recognize truth for what it is? And we've been looking a little bit at the history of how we got here and goes back to uh, a Scottish philosopher called David Hume. And uh, those of you who shirk or shriek or fall away when you mention the word philosophy, I was once one of those people until I realized how the history of thought really has affected us and continues to affect us. And uh, we are we're in the middle of, uh, I guess, the emergence of a post-truth culture that everybody really believes in. You know, you can't take a stand for anything. If you do, you are um, narrow-minded, a bigot, or something like that. But how, do, how did we get here? And we, we began to look at um, some, some of the ideas that really have contributed to this. And one of the terms I've used is a, is a fact-value dichotomy that separates facts, which can be uh, proven scientifically, they have empirical evidence, 
or mathematical evidence, and those are the facts, and we can we can stand on them as truth. And then the other side is values. Now, at the beginning of this idea, values basically had, if I can say this, no value. Uh, that everything had to be factual. We had to be able to ascertain what is real through scientific method and or mathematical um, problem solving. We had to demonstrate those things. And there were even uh, in the 20th century, a group of scientists who turned into philosophers, they were known as the Vienna Circle, uh, also called logical positivists. Sorry to be throwing all these big ideas at you. But the logical positivists basically de declared that only facts derived from experiment and observation could be called truth. And they rejected all talk about values, ethics, morals, religion, philosophy, not only as preferences without foundation, but as meaningless or non-cognitive babble. Values were depreciated as mere matters of taste and as not subject to rational or objective discussion. To ask whether it's wrong to lie or steal was equivalent to asking whether one prefers chocolate or vanilla ice cream. The answer was just a matter of personal taste, ungrounded in any truth or reality, because there was no experiment that could be performed to prove the truth of any answers. So the logical positivist did this. So if you just take a step back and just ask, but what do people do with values? Values can't be proven true or false. They can't be proven right or wrong. Um, this all happens now today in what's called a postmodern move. And what, what happened to these logical positivists and David Hume is that basically when World War I came around, there was this movement that basically said that all of you modernists who believe that you could prove truth by, by science or by math, you have failed us. And we don't believe that truth really exists. So they moved away from this, this logical positivism, this um, idea that there's this fact-value dichotomy. And instead of relying on the facts, they moved into the values. And where they did that, they also devalued truth because no one can know the truth or there is no such thing as truth. So <clears throat> what does postmodern mean? This is one of the problems we have because even postmodernists don't agree on what it means. But basically, it is a destruction of truth. They, they deconstruct it. Um, they deconstructed the idea that you could know reality, that you could know what really is. If we um, residing in the idea that the definition of truth is that uh, any truth statement, any truth claim has to correspond to what is real. Well, they deconstructed that without seeing the irony of it. Even the, the logical positivists who had this fact-value dichotomy or David Hume, who had the, the fact or began to promote this idea of a fact-value dichotomy, they didn't realize that they couldn't scientifically prove those statements. They couldn't prove them mathematically. So basically, those statements themselves or those ideas themselves are values. 
and they collapse in on themselves because you can't prove them. You can't say that this is real. This is the way it is. And, you know, the irony of it is, is that they don't see it themselves. And even postmodernists who say that there is no such thing as truth are relying on truth to make that claim. And I know you've heard that before if you've listened to, to Dr. Frank Turek. But they deconstruct truth. This is what they're doing. They also deconstruct what we call a meta-narrative. That's just a fancy way of saying a big story. That there's one story that explains all of reality. So they deconstruct that or they see the death of that. So even Darwinian evolution is that big story. And they don't believe that. They believe everybody can have a piece of the story. So we have to go back to the primitive tribes and get their basis for reality. We, we look at all different things to understand what, what is real and what's not real. We can't have one story, which of course excludes the Bible. So you have the deconstruction of truth, the death of the meta narrative, and then the demise of the text. And this one is almost is almost humorous. Well, it is humorous, not almost humorous, but because postmodernists have written lots of books that you want them, they want you to read those texts and understand their meaning. But in fact, what they're saying in those texts is that the meaning is not in the text but it's in the person who is reading it. Every person has their own interpretation of the text. Now, of course, they want you to understand their meaning. They don't want you to interpret their text to mean something else, but that's one of the ironic things. And then we see the dominion of therapy. Now, I don't want to say that there is no room for therapy in any shape, way, or form. I think that there is a use for it. I think that there are some therapists that can use some good Christian values to do it. But it's taken the place of the pastor. It's taken the place of the priest. It's taken the place of the person who would speak with authority from the scripture. If you just see the flow of how this postmodern idea really undergirds what we call a post-truth culture. So you see the dominion of therapy, and I know I'm sure I'll get some emails concerning this, but we have to understand that, that it is those who are called to ministry that have a handle or a good understanding of the scripture and are able to speak the scripture and counsel people with the scripture should be where we're looking, but that's a whole other authority. And then we see the decline of authority, that who are you to tell anybody else how to live, because there is no right or wrong. There is no good or evil. It's all in the eye of the beholder. So there's no one who has the authority to say this is evil or this is wrong. The postmodernist would challenge anybody to say, you know, what is your basis for authority? And we even hear that in the church today in things like progressive Christianity. We hear those things. And then finally, we hear about the, the displacement of morality. And basically, because there is no right or wrong, there is no good or evil, no one can tell you how to act morally. And of course, that goes into all kinds of sexuality. And we saw this starting with uh, Roe, Roe versus Wade in, in the early 1970s where a woman's right to choose became the highest thing. And there was no one who could say whether the, the being growing in a woman's womb was human. And we've watched that 
unfold into over 50 million babies being aborted. And now we went into, we had to accept homosexuality as normal. Uh, I know this sounds like hate speech. Uh, that was until, the, again, the early 1970s. It was um, considered a psychologically an aberration of activity. Well, you just follow it through. There is no morality. We can do whatever we want to do to where a boy can say he's a girl and has to be treated as such and in some places has to be addressed as such. Well, this is the post-truth um, culture we're living in, and it's based on this idea of, of, um, <clears throat> of postmodernism. But we're seeing this very differently today. And it was um, a man called John Dewey, if you're familiar with education, who brought up this whole idea of values clarification. And uh, because of just this fact-value dichotomy, it really brought all kinds of um, confusion into things. But it was Dewey who basically really attacked, I believe, attacked Christianity and attacked uh, the, the truth about reality. And let me just say it this way. Individuals determine values. In the 1970s, they started a program called Values Clarification. And values clarification just left it up to individuals to decide anything. I started off by saying, you know, where does a, a young man or a young woman, for that matter, get the idea that they can pick up a gun and just go into a school and start shooting people or into a marketplace or any place else? Where does anybody get that idea from? It's because when we let individuals determine values and the church is no longer or any religious group is no longer being the one that decides what is really good for society or value for society. Remember, there is no good. There is nothing good. There's nothing we could look at to say this thing is good or this thing is evil. Well, in values clarification, individuals determine values. And here's, here's one of the, the, the really bad things about this. Values cannot be judged because individuals are determining values who are you to tell me this is wrong? Who are you to tell me what I should do? Uh, you don't have no, no authority to do it. So values cannot be judged. And values clarification basically had another seven points. Um, you choose a value. And you choose a value from among the alternatives. Is it good for me to think that I'm the opposite sex today? I have a choice. I could be the sex that I think my biology tells me or I could decide something else. And then you have to consider the consequences of each. Uh, what, what is it gonna cost me to do this? How am I gonna do this? Well, those are the first three, and we'll look at the, the last four when we come back from this break. Okay, this is Ray Siervo standing in for Frank Turek, and we're talking about navigating in a post-Christian culture. College campuses are hostile to the Christian faith, and three out of four young people walk away from the church once they go to college. That's why we go to college campuses and present I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist in the United States and even all over the world. When we do this, 
We don't charge students a dime. That's why we need your financial support. In fact, over the past couple of years, we've been able to grow dramatically because of your generous support. And 100% of your donations go to ministry. Zero percent go to building. So when you give to Cross-Examined, you'll be giving to help us go reach young people where they are. Would you consider giving today? Thank you so much, and thank you so much for what you've done already. Hey, this is Ray Siervo again from No Pat Answers. I have a website called nopatanswers.com. You can go there and look me up. Also, I have a Facebook page that is Ray Siervo Ministries. So it'd be facebook.com forward slash Ray Siervo Ministries. And you can check me out there. We've got a lot of videos there, some videos on my website as well. And I want to talk, tell you about um, the ministry that Frank Turk does with Cross-Examined in uh, CIA, Christian Instructors Academy, which is taking place August 8th, 9th, and 10th in Brooklyn, New York. That, by the way, is my hometown. And it is one of the best things that you can do. It is an investment for you. It's a great, great conference. There are world-class speakers that are there, um, just terrific apologists. And I have the privilege this year of being one of the presenters. And I hope to see you there. Go to crossexamine.org where you can see all of, the, all of the information about the conference and also that you can apply right there. It's an investment in your future. You will be called to uh, present a piece of the apologetic message or the case for Christ in some way. And it, it's a, just a great conference. You know, there are, everyone will, will have the opportunity to do that presentation and then get feedback on how you can improve it. And when you leave there, you'll be more confident in sharing your faith and being able to defend the faith. So again, August 8th, 9th, and 10th, go to crossexamine.org and you can, you can register there and find out all the information. And I'll give you more information about what I do in, in Long Branch, New Jersey, um, a few times a year. Those things are always there. Okay, we're talking about values clarification. I gave you the first three of how this values clarification uh, really comes about. This was put forth by a man called Sidney Simon, and he outlined these seven steps on how to basically clarify your values. And I mentioned choosing the value. And then number two was choosing them from among alternatives and then considering the consequences of each one of them. The fourth one is that you have to decide to be happy with a choice that you're making. And one of the things that you notice about people who want to be have an alternative lifestyle in any way, shape or form really it is number five is that you have to publicly affirm it. You have to declare it publicly that this is your choice. This is what you want to be. And then <clears throat> number six is acting on the basis of that cho chosen value. And number seven, very simply, is incorporating that into your life. And this is what we're seeing today, whether it be um, a transgender person or a gay person or someone who's choosing this lifestyle or recognizing any value you have. You can even go through this this list of seven things and decide that you can pick up a gun and go shoot people. 
that that this is the choice that you have made and um it is it is a scary scary thing um <clears throat> we we could look at at these things and and say that there's a soft side to this meaning that suggests that objective facts today are less influential in shaping public opinion than the appeals to emotion and personal belief well that is one of the things that um, is really in our society today, that our emotions and our feelings outweigh now what, what people like David Hume and even, <clears throat> even others, uh, the, the Vienna Circle, that wanted to promote the idea of science. What's really happened is that in our culture, we've seen something really shift to where our own feelings or our own values supersede even what are the physical things or the material things that we could look at and understand in a different way. Uh, Abdu Murray, who's part of Ravi Zacharias's ministry, wrote a terrific book a couple of years ago called Saving Truth. And I have to say that um, whether it was last year or the year before, uh, it was the best book I read that year. It was a, just a terrific understanding of, of our culture and what we're doing in our society. And um, how, do we, how do we navigate in this? And hopefully we'll get to a piece of that. And I'll talk to you about some of the things that I do that help us turn skeptics into seekers. Um, what's happened in our culture, Abdu-Mari says, this the hard meaning being smuggled in here tells us that in this culture, we willfully and justifiably convey something false because it accomplishes a personal or end goal. So it's either a personal goal or an end goal. And then the end justify the means, in effect, it doesn't really justify themselves. There's no way to justify those things. But again, let me read that to you again. It says the hard meaning being smuggled in here tells us that in this culture, we willfully and justifiably convey something false because it accomplishes a personal or end goal. And the end justifies the means and the means in effect do not need to, to justify themselves. And that's the scary thing about it. And it's all aimed at truth. It's all aimed at the, the value of what we call a truth claim. How do we know something is true? And when you lose absolute truth, you lose any hope for a moral society. And what people are really looking for, they're not looking for freedom. They're looking for autonomy. And autonomy is that idea that, that we recognize are, uh, I don't want anybody to tell me anything about my ideas about life. I want to be completely free, that there are no guidelines. Uh, parents, you cannot impose your values on your children because they have to discover those values themselves. And I said earlier, we have educated our children to do this because it's part, certainly in my part of the world, in the Northeast, this is part of our educational culture that parents or any religious group cannot and should not, must not impose their values on young people. They have to discover for themselves what is right and what is wrong. And it is, you know, a very, very scary thing.
um, <clears throat> when we look at this this part of the equation of autonomy and that you're letting children decide what is real and what's not real, um, it's a very scary thing. You know, they can put it in the, in the guise of trying to discover truth or search for truth, but it's really a desire to feel nice. It's a desire to feel comfortable, a desire to be affirmed, a desire to be included, a desire to feel warm and cozy, a desire to be wealthy and powerful. And everything takes a back seat. Any, any kind of reasonable decision-making takes a back seat um, because anything that is authoritative has to be something that we, we don't recognize as a value. And so we cannot and t we cannot put things on people, and um, that's the scary part of it. So parents have really no authority anymore. We just let children become whatever they think to become, and that is the frightening part of our life. So um, we're in a culture today that doesn't recognize the need for the gospel. We have by negating truth about reality, we've negated what sin is. Um, but, you know, as Christians, we have to go back to the scripture and recognize where, where truth comes from. You know, the apostle uh, John says in his gospel, verse 17 of chapter one, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came into being or were realized through Jesus Christ. And we have to recognize that. We have to recognize um, the reality of it. And let me just say this. I'll repeat it again later. It's one of my stand-on verses. It's from 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, that the church is the pillar and support of the truth. Now, I believe that Paul was writing about the gospel there. But if truth doesn't exist, then the gospel isn't true. We can't have any. We can't connect the gospel to truth if there is no such thing as absolute truth. So we have to be able to to realize that. We have to be able to stand for that. And I pray all the time that the church would love the truth. We would love the truth because it's the only way that we can we can navigate in this culture. It's like trying to get somewhere on a ship without a compass. You know, just uh, you can't do it. You can't do it by some means, even um, when we look at the stars and that sort of thing, but we have a fixed place that we are sailing from. And when we negate truth in our lives, the reality of truth, we, we end up in this chaos that we're living in today. And uh, we can get upset at it. We can get upset at, at what's happening in the media. We can get upset what's happening in the culture. We can get re react to all these things and and shake our heads at it. But the reality of it is that as the church, we're supposed to do something. And one of the first things we should do is love truth and recognize that the church is the pillar and support of truth. And that's where we're going to find our way and navigate in this post-truth culture. Because the bedrock of our Christian experience still goes back to Matthew's gospel where we are told that Jesus said this. He came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe 
all that I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. That is the bedrock of our Christian experience and our Christian ministry. We should be going into all the world and make disciples. And while I said we can shake our head at the, the culture and seeing the things that are going on there, we have to recognize what is our identity. Uh, I am not what I feel like today. I'm not what other people think of me. I am who God thinks of me. I'm, I am who the Bible declares, who God declares I am through the scripture. And I'm told that as the church, we are the pillar and support of the truth. And so we should be doing some things that will um, demonstrate what truth is. We have to learn how to navigate, how to share Jesus in this post-truth culture. And one of the things that I did was I, I'm a resource person in the sense of I, I always look for resources. Uh, one of the things that we learned and I learned uh, early on in life and was certainly strongly reinforced later on in my life was how to do research, how to go and find things. And when we come back, I'm going to share some things with you about how do we navigate, how do we share the gospel with, with this post truth culture. So when we come back, we'll get into that. If you find value in the content of this podcast, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find more. Just type cross-examine or Frank Turek on the search bar. Also, visit our website where we add new videos, articles, and free resources daily. Hey, this is Ray Siervo, and I am standing in for Dr. Frank Turek on crossexamine.org. And it's a real privilege to do this. We've been talking about how to navigate in a post-truth culture. And I've laid out some things about how postmodernism and fact-value dichotomy, some real heavy stuff. But you know what? Making a case for Christ is heavy lifting. You really have to learn how to do the heavy lifting. And this is not an easy come to a seminar and bang, you're there. No, there's a lot of reading involved, a lot of wrestling with texts and so on. And uh, I've been at this for over 20 years um, and, uh, you know, looked at all different things. I have to say that I, I owe some of what I do today to people who have gone on before me. And uh, I've mentioned um, or I would like to mention uh, Greg Kokel's book, Tactics, really helped me understand how to engage people. And if we're going to be the pillar and support of truth and navigate in this post-truth culture, there's some things that you have to learn. And what I've done is I've put a, a seminar together that I would be happy to come to your church anytime or your group and share the ideas that I've put together. And I'm just going to give you a brief a brief uh, overview of some of the things that I've, I've put in there, but it's how do you turn a skeptic, someone who doesn't believe that truth exists, let alone that Jesus is the savior of the world and he died for our sins. How do you turn that person into uh, a seeker? You know, I, I don't profess that I can make them a Christian, but I could, I could definitely turn them into a seeker. And I'm using the idea of skeptic as someone who either denies, challenges, or ignores the gospel message. And uh, everybody has to learn how to do this. It's a real privilege for me to share the gospel. And uh, what I've learned to do 
is um, get it get at a person's heart because unless a person here's something that this if you don't hear anything else I say this is important unless a person will doubt their worldview unless a person will doubt their thoughts about the meaning of life they'll never really never really be open to new thoughts or ideas so you have to get at that heart and uh, one of the things that I do is I use the image and I ask congregations this, do you know how to paint? Because you're going to have to paint a portrait of the person you're talking to. Now, this is someone uh, in this situation, someone that you're going to see more than once. Um, or if you're really good at this, you can do it while you're sitting on an airplane and they're sitting right next to you. But you want to be able to, to listen to that person to understand them. Here's what most people do. We listen and anticipate an answer that we can pounce on. And what that demonstrates is that we have not really listened. I learned this from a, actually a feminist uh, who really saw the light herself. I don't know if she became a Christian, but her name is Cassie J. And you can Google her on YouTube or look, search her on YouTube. And she has a really brief thing about um, listening to people. And basically she shared this idea that how we listen anticipating what someone's going to say and we're waiting we're waiting for that 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 sour note and just jump on them when 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 we hear that you know we attack that thing and it really demonstrates we're really not listening to understand we're listening to answer and what we want to do is learn how to listen to understand that person to see where they're coming from uh, Ravi Zacharias says it this way, behind every question, there's a questioner. And we want to get to the heart of that questioner. So I ask people, you know, can you paint? And of course, that always summons up some looks from them saying, paint how, paint what? Um, <clears throat> Tim Keller said this, he said, we could do a far better job of patiently listening. And we should not talk until we can represent the skeptic's viewpoint with empathy so that a skeptic friend says, yes, that is my hang-up. I couldn't have put it better myself. So that's, what, that's the kind of response we're looking for from someone that we're talking to. We want to be able to listen to them, to understand where they're coming from. What is their block that's keeping them from seeing the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ? What is it that we have to do? You know, the test for how well you're listening or how well you have listened is how accurate you're painting their portrait. And that is that has a real challenge to me because, you know, when you go to seminary and you study apologetics and you read all the books, boy, your head is filled with answers and you are chomping at the bit just to let these answers fly. But if you really want to turn a skeptic into a seeker, one of the things that you have to do it's just learn how to listen. And one of the main things to do is don't interrupt. Let them talk. Let them say. Some people have never actually expressed what they believe, you know, what they're looking for um, in life and why they even believe what they believe. You know, have they been sold, <clears throat> pardon me, a bill of goods where they just believe something because it was some real pithy statement? 
Um, no, I, you know, it could be, it could be, but a lot of them have never even just expressed what they, what they believe. And so what you want to do is, is let them talk and just listen, ask questions. You know, Greg Kokel's book tactics that I mentioned, you know, when they use a term, even a simple term that we think we understand, like the term God, you stop and you ask them, what do you mean by that? And whenever they make an assertion, you ask them, how did you come to that conclusion? And let them talk. And then finally, you know, what, what Greg says is that we ask them, have you ever considered this to share it? It's putting on, moving from a painter to an investigator. Uh, do this investigation where I'm just keeping the notes. I'm just writing things down. But one of the most important things that I think we need to do is take on the idea of a treasure hunter. I'm looking for the treasure of their heart. Uh, I want to I wanna find out the things that really support their views. What makes them get out of bed in the morning? What makes them hold on to a particular view? And can I can I deal with it? You know, there are some real hard ones, like when people say, well, my family is my life. Well, how do you deal with that? How do you say, no, no, that's wrong? Well, there's ways to say that God has really orchestrated families or God has created families that give honor and praise to him instead of just making the family an end in itself, but making the family something that honors God and showing them just a little tweak that they can understand this. And of course, the object is you want to lead them to God. But becoming a treasure hunter, or sometimes I use the image of a prospector, someone who's out there looking for gold. You know, I'm, that's what I'm looking for. I want to find out what makes this person tick. What makes them get out of bed in the morning and do the things that they do all day long or what they're living their life for, what they're working for. Um, I, I want to find those things out. So, it, And I want to be able to say it back to them as that painter, as that portrait painter. Um, but it's because I'm an investigator and I am a treasure hunter or a prospector. And we also want to understand that you have to know where the person is starting from. And this is where becoming a guide really underlies it all in one sense. You know, when you go to a museum, sometimes there are people outside that are basically guides. And they, they're telling you, you know, for so much money, they will take you through and explain the exhibits to you. Um, and you, you can pay them to do that. I've done that when I've visited um, Italy or some other country, gone to the Vatican, and it's really paid off. Um, they, they know how to point things out. Well, in our case, the guide has to know where that person is starting from and where they are going to, um, where we want to get them to. And of course, we want to bring them to the foot of the cross. We want to bring them to Jesus. Now, I also believe, you know, we may not be the person who closes the deal with them, but we may be someone who helps them along the way. And again, it starts with finding out where they are, ask the questions to kind of understand where they are. Listen so that we can understand where they are. And of course, you have to have in your arsenal the weapons of your warfare. You have to understand what truth is, what thinking correctly is, 
but it's understanding where that person is starting from and how I can help them get there. You know, a friend of mine tells a story where he was in a foreign country and he stopped somebody and asked directions. And the person turned around to them and said, well, you can't get there from here. And he looked at the guy and said, where do you expect me to start from? The truth is you can get anywhere from here. You just have to know how to get there. And when, when we listen to people, we have to understand where they're starting from and what steps they need to take and also discover what are the obstacles that are keeping them. Are they intellectual op obstacles? Are they emotional obstacles? Are they things that, you know, uh, people bring up because something bad happened to them in the past or they lost somebody? Just discovering what are those things and then how to respond to those things. Well, that's where we understand being a guide uh, and taking on that idea that I'm going to I'm going to help this person. You know, this is what happened when Philip met the Ethiopian eunuch, um, got up there and uh, Philip asked the eunuch, do you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch turned around and said, how can I understand unless somebody shows me the way? That's my translation. I'll elaborate a little bit, but basically that's basically what the eunuch said. And that has always spoken to me, that a person needs someone to come alongside them and help them explain to them what the gospel is, what this is. Well, this is Ray Sierra again. I have really enjoyed being with you. You can find me on Facebook, Ray Sierra Ministries, NoPatAnswers.com is my website. I'm on Twitter at RCIervo. That's C-R-C-I-E-R-V-O. It has been a real privilege to share these things with you. But understand that you can navigate this post-Christian world. You can navigate it by understanding what it is. We hope you got a lot of value out of this episode. If you think our podcast needs to reach more people, here's what you can do to help. Go to iTunes and type cross-examined official podcast, four words in the search bar, and leave us a five-star rating. It'll take you less than five seconds. And if you have a few more seconds to spare, leave us a positive review. The best reviews will be featured on future episodes. You can also listen on Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play. God bless.